am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast. My name is Joydeep Sengupta and I lead knowledge for our global banking practice. In this podcast, though, we'll focus on the Asian banking sector and how we see it emerging from the pandemic. It's been uh, quite interesting as we have looked at the performance of banks that banks have done much better than most expected. Two years into uh, the pandemic, much lower credit losses. But at the same time, we've seen a lot more uh, well-capitalized banks which have had impact on uh, certainly the returns. At the same time, we've also seen the pandemic accelerating trends in the banking sector. Digital banking uh, has been one in particular which we have seen uh, truly accelerate. Of course, more recently, rising inflation continues to present, and I'd be interested as we go through this, is it an opportunity, is it a, is it a challenge, is it going to be beneficial for the banks? Uh, and, and clearly, one of the big themes, though, that uh, I'd love to dwell on today is what we are seeing and what we call the great divergence. The divergence in value creation between a few banks and really the non-banks or the specialists. And uh, as we go through it, I'll share a few numbers that we've seen, which uh, clearly are quite startling. So we'll keep this uh, really focus around these few themes, uh, maybe starting with how do you see the banking sector recovering from the pandemic? What are some of the big shifts that you're seeing? Who's accelerating ahead and why? And then what is it that as we look at the continuing battle between the neo banks and the traditional banks, uh, where do you see that? What do you see as the end game? Joining me to tackle these meaty themes are two very senior journalists who keep a close watch on developments in the banking and financial sector across the region. Our guests are Joyce Mulakis, senior banking reporter at the Australian newspaper, and Chris Wright, Asia editor of Euromoney. Thank you very much for joining us and a warm welcome to the both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Chris, maybe I'll uh, kick off with Joyce with somewhat of fairly benign but important question. How do you see the banks two years into the pandemic? How do you see the banking sector uh, today uh, vis-a-vis where we started off? Uh, well, if I give a little bit of an Australian perspective, which I think is fairly reflected Similarly, in the region, the banks, as you said, have fared remarkably well. You know, they took a whole lot of, you know, billions and billions of dollars of provisions leading into the pandemic in 2020, and they're writing those back as we go through the sort of transition out, if you like, of COVID. The digitisation theme has been huge in Australia as consumers have really taken up the digital channels they've had to, and that's really accelerated. So I think they've fared reasonably well. We had caps around dividends. Those have come off now. So dividends have resumed. 
so it's really, it has been a, an interesting time for the banks, but interest rates being at record lows has obviously been a big headwind um, in Australia um, and the region, obviously. So that's been a big headwind for the banks, net interest margins under a lot of pressure over these last two years. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, Chris, do you, how do you see that play out in the rest of the region? Do you see a similar uh, view? Yeah, I think the themes that Joyce sees in Australia are playing out across the region. It was a curious pandemic from a bank perspective, wasn't it? Everything that you would have expected to destroy banks, frankly, simply never happened. And there was a simple reason for that, which was the intervention of central banks, governments, in creating as much support for both consumers and companies uh, to such an extraordinary degree that the expected losses simply never reached the banks. You know, the hit was taken earlier. It never got to bank balance sheets. So banks provisioned enormously here as they did in Australia, here as they did in the rest of the world. And the question throughout the crisis was, how much bad news is this disguising when all of these programs are rolled away? Just how bad is the pain going to be? But we can now see the pain hasn't been that bad at all principally because interest rates were so low that nobody got into a huge amount of trouble with their borrowing. They were able to service their debt and banks are coming out of it in very good shape. But what's weird is that as we now emerge into what should be this sort of bright new dawn of economic largesse for the banking sector, in some ways the threats are greater in these good times than they were in what should have been the bad times. And this is something we'll talk about more, I'm sure. I'm thinking about themes of inflation and the way that inflation will wash through at a time of uncertainty and supply chain disruption. So the picture in some ways is just as interesting now as it was uh, a year and a half ago. Opportunities for sure, but threats as well. Thank you, Chris. Maybe I'll uh, pick up a little bit on the point you made around inflation. Is it a blessing? Is it a curse for the banks? Many banks that I talk to are, especially those who are deposit rich, particularly with, you know, CASA balances, are somewhat salivating as the prospect of uh, higher net interest margins coming through. But yet, you know, there is a possibility, as you said, as interest rates rise, the specter of bad debts, which may not have fully gone away, coming back. So where do you guys stand on this? So ordinarily... Of course, rising interest rates and inflation would be good for banks. As Joyce said, net net interest margins have been under pressure for two years. You make a greater and easier return when interest rates are higher. Now, that's fine if all economies are growing in a good and predictable manner and the rising tide lifts all boats and all of those good things. But I still don't think these these are quite normal economic conditions in which we're operating today. So once you start rising rates, not all businesses have come through COVID in the same condition that they entered it into. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, they've been protected by low interest rates. Their borrowings have not been hard to surface. But if you find yourself in a position where, as a corporate borrower, you are now paying a lot more interest on your debt, the truth is you're not doing so in beautiful, clear economic skies. You're doing so with supply chain challenges, vastly increased energy costs. You're doing so at a time when mobility is still massively restricted, particularly here in Asia, as you know, Joy Deep. It's just not the same as it is in Europe or the States. You can't just move across borders with with freedom. We're not there yet. And there's a war. 
So there's an awful lot happening, which which means you, you could end up in a, in a very difficult double situation of rising rates and costs at the same time as economic growth actually being impeded, which brings us towards concerns of stagflation and so forth. And uh, a truism, of course, is that if conditions are bad for borrowers, they're not great for banks either, because then you start worrying about defaults in a way that you haven't really had to for the last couple of years. Thank you, Chris. Please go ahead, Joyce. Yeah, I was just going to completely agree with with Chris, basically. It is this sort of almost a double whammy, if you like. So you, you do have improving economic conditions and talk of cash rates being tightened and, and interest rates rising, but inflation brings with it these other supply challenges, petrol prices being higher, companies are still struggling to get stock in you know, the, the time that they require it. So as banks sort of go through their lending books and assess this, um, there will be different pockets of difficulty, if you like, as some of these factors flush through their loan books. So I think um, there will be positives from rising interest rates on the net interest margin side, but there are all these other inflationary pressures that are feeding through and potentially harming some of their business customers. So it's a very um, watch and see sort of situation, particularly, as Chris said, with energy prices going even higher because of the conflict we're seeing um, in the Ukraine. Going back to the performance of banks and and where we started, and I think we all agreed that, you know, clearly banks have come out uh, quite strong and and much less impacted from the pandemic uh, than what we perhaps had originally thought uh, two years ago as we were getting into it. Uh, But it's equally true that notwithstanding that around the world, I think a vast majority of banks still don't return their cost of capital, uh, despite it being probably the best of times. And for the first time, I think we are seeing this uh, being reflected quite strongly in uh, market valuations, or at least uh, what I call the divergence in market valuations. And you have seen this in uh, in the analysis we did in our annual banking report that of the two trillion or so of value that was created in the last 18 uh, months or so, a vast majority of that, almost 90% of that went to non-banks and less than 10% went to individual banks. In fact, 65 institutions accounted for almost all of that. So the question, I guess, that begs being asked is, you know, banking is clearly important, but are universal banks important anymore? Or are we seeing a move towards the end? Well, I can make a couple of points on that. The universal banking model, I think it was instructive to see City wish to sell its consumer assets across the entire region. That speaks to a view among the major multinationals that trying to be absolutely everything is not necessarily desirable and that retail in particular just sucks up an enormous amount of risk-weighted assets at a time when you really need them to be delivering for you. And in City's case, they've gone absolute full pelt on wealth management and institutional. They believe that's where the money is. Fine. But at the same time, it's not like there weren't buyers for those assets. Institutions across Asia perceived that there was really good business in expanding their operations and uh, having perhaps a broader suite of services or at least a broader client base. So so you can make both cases. Uh, I think this takes us, of course, into the fintech and digital bank argument. And I think it's a really striking and interesting time 
to be looking at that because in China in particular, which in Asia really did lead in terms of fintech utility taking on the low-hanging fruit of easy banking services, that picture has changed beyond recognition of the last year. And it's done so, of course, because of regulation. I might speak just a moment about this because I think there is a broader point that comes from it. China used to be the absolute leader in highly profitable fintech services, those that evolved out of e-commerce models, chiefly Tencent and Alibaba, because its regulatory position was just perfect for them to exist. It was not restrictive. There was a huge population that was comfortable with smartphones to do their banking. They were underserved by the major banks in China. It couldn't have been better. But they got too big, clearly, and China's regulators became deeply uncomfortable, I think, with both the scale of their power and perhaps their interconnection of broader financial services. And the last year, ever since the Ant IPO was uh, abandoned, uh, has been just one hit after another of tightening regulation. And you might think this is just a China story in that it uh, impedes the ability of Chinese fintechs to compete with the big banks in the way that just seemed to be a, an endless one-way street. But I'd argue it's bigger than that for two reasons. One is the fact that Ant and Tencent own chunks in so many of the fintech players across Asia. It's almost everyone you can think of, you know, Mint in the Philippines or Paytm in India. There's so many examples They've all got Alibaba or Tencent either as a shareholder or in many cases, much more than that. They're in practical terms injecting the tech into the back of a local enterprise and letting the local house have the front end licenses and marketing and so forth. So there is a knock on effect when those guys get stymied at home. Secondly, I think the whole world has been looking around thinking, well, how do we regulate these guys? What is the right position to take in order to both foster innovation improve the customer experience, but not necessarily wreck an existing 200-year-old banking system, which had been doing pretty much fine and serves some sort of social use. And of course, consumer protection. And every regulator is looking for that correct balance. And when a market as big as China takes such a drastic step, it gets noticed. You, you, you can't imagine that it won't have an influence in the way that others think. So I think we've seen a slight recalculation in the endless stratospheric rise of the fintechs for non-banks. I think that's been checked slightly over the last year. Uh, I don't know what you think. Joyce? Definitely. Uh, we've seen a lot of this sort of neo-banking, digital bank non-bank models, the startups come under a lot more pressure this year in terms of needing a trajectory to profitability. Investors aren't, you know, with interest rates on the rise, investors aren't going, these valuations aren't going to be sustained indefinitely. And I think following on from Chris's point, banking sort of going one of two ways. You know, there's that whole co commoditization theme around banking as a service. Westpac down this way, uh, has teamed up with Anthony Jenkins 10 times to provide banking services to the likes of Afterpay, which is now, of course, owned by Block. You're seeing retailers like Walmart and Ikea looking at banking as a service. Um, so that's sort of one development, if you like, as banks sort of think we've got to be part of the equation. Then you've got other banks that are thinking, well, we've got to keep up with these fintechs create our own ecosystem, make sure our apps are diverse and engaging enough that we're not losing customers to some of these sort of compelling 
uh, startups. I might add one more thing, if I may. Here in Singapore, we're about to be at something of a proving ground as the digital licensees gradually move towards operational status. And it's going to be very interesting to see how they do. The environment they are going to enter is quite different from the one that existed when they applied for the licenses in uh, the pre-COVID days. I wonder if it's as difficult as you might expect it to be, given the disruption, but, but, but it is certainly different. They have a particular business focus. Some are focusing on the SME sector, some on uh, ordinary consumer, the logic being that the existing banks don't particularly want to play in those areas. Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see if that's true. You know, Joy Deep, from working in this market, you can't have a conversation for very long with OCBC or UOB or even DBS without it turning to the SME opportunity. So there is actually still a competitive field. It's not just a question of digital banks moving into areas that the existing banks don't want anymore. So it's going to be very interesting to watch that come through. And there are good examples in the region of digital banks that have found their niche and really done very well. I would say South Korea is probably a standout for that. I'm thinking of Kakao, of course. And in fact, that's a better still example because there's two digital banks that came at the same time. One flourished and one didn't. So that tells its own story, but you have to get it right, both in terms of strategy, but also your capital position and your backers. So I think Kakao proves to us that there are real opportunities for a well-run digital bank even in a heavily banked market. But it's not automatic. You've got to get it right. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential. But the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise. It is how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, go, go ahead, Joyce, please. Oh, I was just going to mention, um, yeah, Australia has seen some interesting dynamics around the um, digital banking space as well. We've had players like Judo, which uh, listed on the stock market last year, which has done quite well in terms of a very targeted SME relationship strategy, former NAB bankers that set, set that bank up. And that's done quite well in terms of its loan book growth, etc. But then you've had other players that were just getting going, getting some momentum, and they've been taken over by some National Australia banks taken over 86400. We've had another digital bank up that was taken over by Bendigo Bank. So we're already seeing some of these players sort of disappear, if you like, as the banks sort of think, well, I can just buy that technology rather than building my own digital proposition. So that's probably the other theme. How many of the fintechs and the digital banks, how many of them will still be around in five or ten years as perhaps this consolidation takes place as the next phase of where the sector heads? Yeah, Australia is really interesting for that, I think, because you see all possible outcomes being realized. You have fintechs that thrive and list. You have fintechs that decide the greater option is to be overtaken by an entrenched legacy competitor. And you've seen fintechs that have just died away and just failed completely. I think it will be interesting to see around the region. You might in Indonesia, for example, point towards the convergence between Gojek and Tokopedia. That in turn was prompted by the growing strength of Grab. There's a lot of jostling, a lot of repositioning still to come, I think, in this sector as it takes shape. No, indeed. And I do think both of you touched upon something which is quite important, that it's it's not necessarily fintechs winning or banks losing or 
banks winning and fintechs losing, but it's really a bit around which players have been able to achieve scale in business model in terms of, and which are players who truly own the customer relationships and effectively bring the center customer at the center uh, of their ecosystem. And I think that's uh, the battle for the customer is still being fought, I, I, I think fair to say. And I think the valuations in some ways are a bet on who our investors think will actually win the battle for customers. Because, you know, one of the things we observe is that there are some markets uh, like Australia where there are some universal banks which are being rewarded, right? And yet there are markets like, uh, you know, high growth markets like India and Indonesia where existing universal banks are still being rewarded because people do believe that there is an opportunity to both get the benefit of growth and scale. On the other hand, in the lower growth markets, I think we do get to a point where just the capital that banks have is weighing them down and with no line of sight to better returns, investors are betting on an alternative form of, of financing, right? Which could be a fintech, which could be a digital bank. And that's why this prevalence of the number of digital licenses pretty much across all markets in Asia, I think, portends an interesting and somewhat volatile environment for sure over the next few years. I, I don't know if you would agree with uh, that perspective <laughs> or whether you'd violently disagree with anything I said. I hope you do. Yeah, I do. I mean, you've obviously written widely on the divergence theme over recent years, and I, and, and I think it's very true. But if we talk about universal banking, you can perhaps subdivide it further, can't you? I, I think the approach of doing everything is not in itself inherently wrong, provided you do it in the right way. So it depends how you bring digital ideas towards what appears a dull legacy business that can transform something into being a perfectly vibrant operation if you do it right. And, and the range of things that you cover then is not necessarily a bad thing if you can do it universally. Although in practice, I think the market has tended to reward those that are very, very focused. I'm thinking uh, like Bank Central Asia and Indonesia for a while had the highest market cap of any, any Southeast Asian bank. And it did so through, of all institutions I cover, it's the most single-minded in absolutely refusing to do new things if it thinks they're the wrong call. Most obviously, it won't leave Indonesia ever. It says, why would we? We know, we know this market. We know a particular segment of the consumer uh, and corporate market. We do it exceptionally well. We're going to keep doing it exceptionally well. And that, I think, speaks to your point of focus and divergence in valuation towards those who do something very, very well, as opposed to those that attempt to do absolutely everything. And I think also, I mean, the divergence in valuation was, I think, a lesson that played out through COVID, particularly in India, was a good place to watch it happen. And it was not just about actual share price or price to book as the availability of affordable funding at a time of particular stress. I'm going back in time a little bit now, but I think it's important and you'll remember it well. In the early days, when nobody really knew what they were dealing with with COVID, the bifurcation between the likes of uh, HDFC Bank, Kotak Mahindra, ICICI, you know, considered the strongest names, I think, in India among the uh, established ones. So I'm going to offend people by missing someone else, so I won't spell out the ones who struggled to reach funding. But the good 
banks found it easier to get funding and they secured a greater competitive advantage purely based on their reputation and what that brought them in terms of funding cost. The banks that were previously perceived to be struggling, things just got worse for them by definition without them actually doing anything else particularly right or wrong. And so there was a real divergence in India in investor sentiment towards the houses that were perceived to be good and progressive versus those that were perceived to be debt-laden and archaic. And in the end, it didn't get so bad that that caused really lasting damage to that many Indian banks. But I thought it was quite an instructive time. And I think it speaks to your point about divergence. Thank you, Chris. And maybe Joyce, if I could come to you with something that Chris wrote. <laughs> so, so Chris, uh, towards the end of the uh, end of last year, wrote a very interesting piece around the valuations between fintechs and banks and the notion that you know, he used a couple of examples uh, to illustrate why some banks were thinking of splitting uh, themselves into two companies uh, virtually, saying that, look, we have a fintech within us and then we have a bank and therefore you should value us differently for both. Uh, I, I thought that's, a, that, that's an interesting train of thought which is going through uh, the minds of many bankers at this point. I'd be curious to see what you think about it also in the context of Uh, Australia for sure, but more broadly as well. Perhaps last year that would have perhaps um, from financial metrics made a a lot of sense from a valuation perspective as talking about the divergence that you were, that you'd mentioned. Um, In Australia, perhaps not so much. Banks are trying to simplify, get rid of sort of additional layers of costs become more like a technology company, more agile, you know, that they are trading above price to book. I think for it to work from a regional perspective, you'd have to have a pretty meaningful fintech um, that could stand on its own two feet and add value to shareholders. Um, A lot of these businesses perhaps aren't there yet, but it really depends on you know, the growth and the trajectory in the digital part of the business versus the incumbent and whether that adds, you know, that really gives delivers enough to shareholders to be able to do a sort of a demerger or a spin-off um, to make it viable. So I think it is a very much sort of case-by-case basis, but probably something that a lot of these institutions throughout the region will be thinking through over the next five to ten years. Chris, any follow-up since you wrote? Any, any any new perspectives that you learned? Well, I suppose a, a, another perspective is that the ideal for bank chief executives, rather than having to demerge anything, is that the market would value them on more of a tech metric than a banking metric. Now, obviously, today, a tech metric is not quite the same as it was six months ago, but certainly throughout that long period of time when tech valuations were going up, there was a sense of some disgruntlement among some of the banks. Uh, Piyush Gupta at DBS has been the most public about it, saying, you know, we're we're a tech company, basically, which happens to lend. You know, why don't you value us differently? But the problem is you can argue with the market till you're blue in the face. <laughs> you know, valuations are just what they are. You can't really make them move by yourself. It's really going to depend on how institutions see you, how analysts see you. And if they still think you're more than a bank than a tech company, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But I think the holy grail for them is a revaluation based on an understanding that banks have understood digital opportunity and have embraced it to the greatest extent that they can. Terrific. 
Uh, one question before I move on to the next topic, which, you know, I really wanted both your views. Data, right? I think increasingly we find all banks talking about data and access to insights and analytics being the next holy grail. At the same time, there are lots of concerns around privacy and other things, as we've seen with some of the tech companies. So the question to you is, if you if you look out, say, three or five years, is data going to be the new oil, as many proclaim, or is it going to be water? I, I think it's already been oil for some time, hasn't it? But I don't know, again, which is the more valuable commodity now? These are unusual times. I don't know. <laughs> Long term, I think we need the water more than the oil, don't we? But, you know, for some years now, banks have wanted data and the ability to mine it haven't they? I, I'll point to um, UOB here in Singapore as, as an example of a place, a traditional old family-run bank, which has over time, over the last five years, I would say, come to a recognition of the enormous value that is there to be mined in uh, data. And I would say their acquisition of cities, businesses in Southeast Asia was partly done because of the richness they perceive in that customer base and their data. So I, I think it's already been happening for some time that, that, that people want to acquire and use as much data as, as they possibly can. One relevant point perhaps in Asia is that there is less squeamishness by and large in Asia about state or bank access to your data than there is in the West. The attitude in China or Singapore to data privacy utterly different to what it might be in, in the UK or Australia or the US. Uh, and that actually helps banks, I think, in their uh, desire to use data as best they can as, a, as an economic engine. Yes, I'd agree. I think um, data is, yeah, it's very valuable. I don't know, water, oil, uh, hard, to, <laughs> hard to say, Joy Deep, but um, obviously highly, highly valuable to banks. And that's sort of um, where in Australia into the second year now of open banking. So, you know, that will sort of be a bit of a proof point around, uh, well, firstly, customers getting more control of their data, but banks also making more personalised um, offers to customers, having to really finesse their use of data to be able to attract, you know, and keep customers because customers... Um, as, we, as you know, I mean, there is a fair bit of inertia in Australia around switching, but, uh, you know, that, that is starting to change. AI, obviously, is a big theme. Commonwealth Bank um, has partnered with a big global AI firm to make more use of AI. Obviously, customer uh, data privacy concerns are top of mind as well. But I think data, um, if banks are harnessing it correctly, it can be a big competitive advantage for them versus their peer group, if they if they're harnessing data correctly, if they're able to, you know, do predictive analysis of someone's ability to pay their bill or, or what have you, I think it's it's only going to be a, another sort of feather in their their bow. But it, again, it's something that needs to be executed well and with the right sort of risk management lens around privacy, data storage, etc. No, thank you. And, and also, uh, I, I think the one other actor in this uh, will be the regulators and the government. And if you look at a market like India, I think 
it's uh, pretty sure that data is going to be like water because it's going to be owned largely and democratically accessed effectively. So no one individual institution will, at least that's the intent at the moment towards which uh, there seems to be. But we'll see how this plays out. But I, I know we have a few more minutes and it would be remiss not to touch on the other big theme of this, which is cryptocurrency. I mean, we could again do a full podcast on on this topic, but so I'll, I'll, maybe we'll just do a teaser for for today. And the and, and the question really is, I, I, I guess there are many ways to think about a cryptocurrency. I think one is that look, it is something which uh, is a store of value. It's the next gold. It's an asset class in itself. The other is, is it a legal tender which facilitates payments much more? Uh, efficiently and effectively. Regulators seem to be all over the place at the moment on whether to ban it, regulate it, do nothing about it. Can they do something about it? What is your view on, will this change the financial structure and the financial system fundamentally? Well, my view is, for a start, it's not behaving like a store of value. That's what it's supposed to do. But speaking now at the end of February with a war underway, the absolute last thing it is doing is behaving like some inflation hedge. It's just a risk asset flying around with greater volatility than any tech stock you could name. Now, does that change over time? That's the utopian idea of it all, this great alternative to gold, to money itself. But we're away away from it. I think this has been rather proven in, in recent months. But that being said, uh, there's no question that there is greater institutional acceptance of crypto in a way that may be begrudging, may be opportunistic, but it is a change. A lot of houses that had been talking about tulips and bubbles and all of this stuff has accepted that at the very least, they need to find ways for their clients to engage with crypto. Otherwise, they're going to miss out. In this market, I think an interesting shift came from the move away from groups like BitMEX, but was still a sort of pure play crypto uh, leverage games based, well, regulated in the uh, Seychelles, for example, to Signum, a newer arrival founded with a lot of backing by people who've worked at the GIC Sovereign Wealth Fund, who actually chose to get regulated in Switzerland and Singapore, actually wanted the big guys regulating them as a way to prove you know, look, we are like what you'd expect from a bank or a fund manager. We've got institutional credibility. DBS launching its digital asset exchange is, of course, relevant, but it's noticeable that they still won't open that to retail. They don't want the reputational risk of a load of people who can't afford it losing their shirt on Bitcoin on a bad day. Insist, but it's essentially it's linked to their private banking platform. You know, it's their sophisticated investors, people who ought to know enough to understand proper risk tolerance. And that's what I think we'll see more of. So gradual opening up by Asian banks, allowing their clients, if they know what they're doing, to get the exposure they want through crypto without forming a judgment about whether that's wise or not. Yeah, I think it's probably, um, I think the next probably year or two will sort of show us one way or the other, whether this is a huge inflection point or which direction it's going in. But certainly agree with what Chris said around some institutions sort of taking some steps to provide access to to their customers. Um, CBA, I think I mentioned earlier, has taken a stake in crypto exchange, Gemini, 
But, Joy Dee, what you mentioned, um, it has been a, a very thorough regulatory approval process. They're dealing with, I think, four different regulators. They're into a second pilot phase of working with the regulators to get them comfortable with allowing CBA customers to buy, hold and trade cryptocurrencies. I think they've, they've got access to 10, including Bitcoin, obviously. So, you know, CBA, our largest bank, taking a very sort of cautious approach to providing that access, not opening up its um, platforms and systems to, you know, criminal activity, etc., making sure regulators are on side. Our central bank here in terms of crypto and, and, you know, central bank digital currencies is taking a very sort of cautious watch and see approach, which is different, again, to how other central banks across the Asia-Pacific region are perhaps uh, uh, looking at and investigating how this might work in the future. So I think for, for, from an Australian perspective, it certainly is more of a five to ten year proposition that we'll have to see how some of these um, issues are addressed globally by regulators and, and how our regulators sort of perhaps get a little bit more comfortable with, with some of these currencies and, and trading opportunities. No, thank you, Joyce. I, I, I must say that I, I've been quite uh, encouraged that there are a number of central banks which are now beginning to pilot the CBDC or even issuance of that because one of the things I do believe that for things like getting cash out of the system, for enabling better financial inclusion, this form of currency, can digital currency can be digital currency can be incredibly valuable. At the same time, I think the risks of the cryptocurrency in itself, I think we all know, including Chris, as you mentioned, the volatility is something which I guess it's very hard for uh, ordinary consumers or ordinary investors to live with. So we will see. I guess this chapter is, I think we are in the beginning of this chapter, much more to be, much more for us to learn. And then I guess uh, it'll be, it'll be, we'll see how it impacts our uh, financial services players. But uh, I think we've come to an end of what has been a truly fascinating conversation. And I must say, I truly enjoyed hearing both your views. You provide a really, really interesting perspective on questions which often don't have clear answers. So thank you for doing that. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.